God is at work through His local church and through the teaching of His Word. This morning on MyBridge Radio, we are pleased to share a favorite message from City Light Church in Omaha. Here's Pastor Gavin Johnson. If you got your Bible, head to Luke chapter 13, verses 22 through 35. By way of context, you know, keep in mind we're in the middle of a biography here. So if you're new, let me just catch up on where we've been. Jesus started his ministry up in the north in the region of Galilee where he grew up. He has begun his way traveling south to Jerusalem for the Passover feast with his disciples where he's ultimately going to die. He left Galilee in chapter 9 and headed for Jerusalem. He's going to get there in chapter 19. So we've got 10 chapters that, that just follow and, and uh, account for this uh, sort of last road trip of Jesus, as it were, as he heads south. And as he journeys, what Luke is recording is his stops along the way. He stops in towns and his villages, and he does ministry, and he heals the sick, and he, he teaches and preaches about the kingdom of God. And so that's where he's at in the book. In today's text, as he's traveling south, someone asked Jesus a question from the crowd, presumably, and it prompts this whole section of teaching that Jesus gives us, and what I would summarize is really being about heaven. Uh, the, the question is essentially, um, uh, how many people are going to be in heaven? And Jesus starts to teach about, uh, well, who does go to heaven? What, is it, uh, what, what kind of people will be in heaven? What happens if we reject the invitation to heaven? And uh, by way of setting up today's topic, the idea of heaven is something that has long sparked the curiosity of man, not only in the ancient world, but in our modern world today. I don't know if any of you guys watched The Good Place. It was an NBC series, wildly popular, about where people go when they, when they die. They either go to the good place, they go to the bad place, and it was horrible theology, but kind of a funny TV show. And uh, wildly popular, 53 episodes they made generated tens of millions of dollars because people are curious about the afterlife and about what is to come. Uh, singers and songwriters have long sung about heaven. So Led Zeppelin, of course, sang Stairway to Heaven. Dylan, knocking on heaven's door, of course, redone by Guns N' Roses. Clapton sang about tears in heaven. And if you listen to really horrible modern bro country, like some people I know sometimes do, uh, there's a guy named Hardy who wrote a song called Giving Heaven Some Hell about drinking beer in heaven. And uh, while it's terrible theology, I will admit it's kind of a catchy song. Anyway, while artists, muse, and singers sing, and we can all speculate and pontificate about what heaven is going to be like, there's one person that we should turn our ear to and give great attention to when it comes to heaven, and that is the man who came from heaven to bring us back to heaven with him, and that is, of course, Jesus Christ. And so in today's text, he's going to be doing just that. He's going to be teaching us some core truths about heaven and the afterlife. And I just want to point out what should be the obvious, that this topic is quite literally of eternal significance and importance to everyone in this room. All of us will spend eternity either in heaven or in hell. And the world is filled with lots of caricatures of heaven, lots of prominent cultural thoughts. It's filled with, with, with false and, and, and flawed thoughts about heaven. But there is one person who knows the truth about heaven, that is Jesus Christ. And he loves us enough to tell us the truth about heaven. And in today's passage, he does, he does just that. So we've got 14 verses that we're going to look at. And in those 14 verses, Jesus is telling us primarily three things about heaven. Number one, he's going to tell us that heaven has a narrow door. He's going to tell us that heaven has a surprising population. And number three, that heaven has a gracious Savior. 
So let's look at these one at a time uh, from the text. The first thing that Jesus tells us is a tough truth, but he tells us that heaven has a narrow door. Let's look at it together, starting in verse 22. It says, and he went on, his, that's of course Jesus, he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. So like the inciting incident of this whole section of teaching is this question. We don't know who it is. It's an unnamed questioner asked the question, essentially, teacher, how many people are going to be in heaven? Is it going to be like a whole bunch or is it going to be just a little bit? Uh, Who will be saved? By the way, this was not a novel question. It didn't show up in a vacuum. This was actually a common theological debate of the day. So there were some prevailing thoughts in Judaism at the time. Some thought that all of ethnic Israel would be saved on that last day. Others thought just the most religious and devout and and committed would reach salvation. Others thought uh, a lot are going to be saved, that it's going to be all of ethnic Israel and and any Gentile convert that would come in. This was their prevailing thought. And so uh, you can picture like freshmen at the local Bible college studying Hebrew, and this is the kind of thing that they would debate about at the lunch table, uh, much like we would today. You know, young seminarians arguing about the predestination of God and the free will of men. This This is the argument of their day. And so here's their opportunity. The rabbi teacher is there. And they ask him uh, the question, so what is it, Lord? Is it going to be a lot or is it going to be a little? Settle our lunchroom debate. This is our chance. Who's right? Thinking it's got to be me. I'm right. He's wrong, right? And what's interesting is that Jesus doesn't actually answer their question directly. Instead, he gives them a very personal warning. Verse 25, he answers it by saying, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. So what's interesting is Jesus actually takes their question and he takes it out of the theoretical, out of the hypothetical, out of the philosophical, out of the theological, and he makes it personal. And he doesn't answer their question just to end the debate. He actually invites them to examine their lives, which is interesting. Essentially saying, hey, we can have theological debates, and you may have all the right answers, but have you personally entered through the narrow door of salvation? And I wonder if Jesus wouldn't respond to many of our debates of the day in a similar way. The modern church loves to debate. Uh, Religious Twitter is the worst thing in the universe. (laughs) Christians argue about everything. Right now, there's sort of this revival going on in Asbury College, and young people are worshiping God and and preaching the Bible. And what happens on the interwebs? Argument. It's not real. It can't be real because of this. Who asked you? Oh, it is real because of this. Rather than rejoicing that God is perhaps doing a wonderful work among young people in our country, we're going to argue about it. And we'll argue about politics, and we argue about social um, issues of our day, and we argue about the role of government. And I wonder if we wouldn't get an audience with Jesus and say, Jesus, settle the store. Which is it? Who's right? Who's wrong? It's got to be me if his response wouldn't be somewhat similar. Can I invite you to examine your heart for a moment? Maybe you're right on all these secondary and tertiary issues, but at the end of the day, that's not what matters. Have you gone through the narrow gate of salvation? Have you gone through the door? Would you examine your heart? Have you died to the need to be right on all the issues? 
There's a word for that. It's called self-righteousness, an insatiable desire to have all the right answers to be right on every issue and to have you instead bowed your need to Jesus alone and his righteousness alone, that you are saved by grace alone through faith alone. That's the narrow door to heaven. The name of the door is Jesus, and he's the only way in. Now, I need to point out, this is like, this just doesn't naturally settle well with us, right? And I don't mean just to be critical of the culture, but all of us in our hearts, something goes off like narrow door. That's, you know, that's not very palatable to our modern senses, right? Moreover, the culture generally is quite offended by such a teaching. Uh, Generally, in our culture, the only thing that is no longer tolerated is intolerance, The only absolute truth is that there is absolutely no absolute truth, right? And so this is is like the unpardonable sin to say that, that salvation is exclusive in our culture. And yet Jesus does say, and we need to wrestle with it and let it settle, that the door to salvation is exclusive, that there is only one way in. That every other door that promises salvation or eternal life or nirvana or paradise or a glorious afterlife is not real. There is one door. It is an exclusive door. And while that's sometimes hard to, um, to stomach and to handle, can I also point out that the invitation to that door is radically inclusive. There is no one who isn't invited to come through that door. The message of Jesus is come one, come all to the door of salvation. It is wide open and it is for you. Trust and receive Jesus. Come to the door of heaven. There is no one who is not invited, who is not welcomed, who is not wanted. Scripture says, for God so loved the whole world that he sent his only son that whomever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. The door of salvation is for all. So yes, it's exclusive, but it's radically inclusive. Imagine with me that Walt Disney World decided that for one week only, they're going to they're gonna open the door to all of their parks, one week only, free admittance, free rides, free food, free everything for an entire week, okay? Or if you're like me and you have no desire really to go to Disney World, imagine that Augusta National Golf Course is going to offer one week of free admittance, okay? The golf course is open to you. It's free golf, free food, free caddy, everything. It is all yours. Come and enjoy everything for free for one week. But the catch is, uh, to come, you do need to go. They're going to open up one of their many gates into Walt Disney World or into Augusta National. And if you want to enter the park for free, you just have to go through the free gate, okay? And imagine that uh, if you go through that gate, you don't need to pay a dime. You don't earn your way in. You don't pay your way in. You just need to enter through the free gate. And then there's no limit to how many can come through the free gate. They are set up to accommodate all who would come and enjoy the park or enjoy the golf course. And imagine someone said, well, how horrible. How closed-minded. How exclusive and bigoted are you to say that I need to enter through to the park through that door? I'll go in through whatever gate I want. I'll pick my own gate and I'll enter through that gate. How ridiculous does that sound? They are welcome in the park. They're welcome to the golf course. They're welcome to enjoy everything. It is all free for them. It will cost them nothing. But what's keeping them on the outside? It's not that they don't have access. It's, it's not that they're not invited in. What is it? It's pride. It's pride. It's entitlement. It's a spirit that says, I'll come in, but I'll come in on my own terms. I'll come in on what sounds right to me, what feels right to me. City light, it's a hard truth, but we have to say it, it doesn't work like that. We live in God's world. 
None of us made this. My very life is by virtue of the gift of God. It is a grace to me. We live in God's world. Heaven is God's heaven. We can try to call the shots and make up the rules, but at the end of the day, this is God's world and this is God's heaven. And scripture says that because of our sin, we actually deserve nothing. But because of what Christ has done for us, we're being offered everything. Infinite joy, everlasting life, eternity with God, but we have to come through the narrow door of Jesus. Jesus is the only perfect sacrifice to die for our sins. Scripture says there's one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so our response to the narrow door shouldn't be, what a narrow-minded and exclusive God. It should be, what an amazing God who has opened a way for us. Amen? What a kind and gracious God we have. And to furthermore think about this, I would just propose that, that very few of us would be so generous and kind as God. Scripture says that in our sin, we've actually rebelled against God, and in our nature, we're actually enemies of God. Not that he has turned his back on us, but rather that we have turned our back on him, right? Scripture says that while we were still sinners, while we were God's enemies, he died for us. So I want you to think about your own enemies. Say, I don't have enemies. I want you to think about people who have hurt you. As you look back over your story, think about the people that have sinned against you, who have turned their back on you, who have harmed you, who have abandoned you, who have gossiped against you, who have slandered your name, who have betrayed you, who have maligned you, who have made things very difficult in the workplace, who have complicated your family life. The very people that just thinking about them makes your blood pressure rise those people in your mind's eye. You would not leave the front door to your house open to them and leave a light on for them and prepare a feast at your table for them to bless them and to serve them and to feast with them and to lavish your love on them and then leave the door open and say, please come through and be my guest at any time. But that's precisely what God has done for us. He has opened a door for us. What a good God. What a gracious gospel. The door is narrow. It is exclusive. There is only one, but all are welcome to walk through it. Amazing. I want to ask you, have you walked through the door? Second truth about heaven that Jesus shows us, it's a narrow door. There's also a surprising population. Surprising population. Look at verse 25. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, that should be troubling. This door will shut at one point. It is open right now. It is going to shut. When he has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock on the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you. I don't know where you are, where you come from. Then you will begin to say, well, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I, I tell you, I don't know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And the people will come from the east and the west and from the north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last will be first and some who are first will be last. So last week, week and a half ago on Thursday, I attended a, a service organization that I'm a part of that's separate from the church. And we have a, a monthly meeting where we go through some business stuff. And so it's Thursday, so I kiss family goodbye. I go to the meeting, we have a dinner, and then we have our, our business session. And as I pulled into the parking lot that night, I pulled up next to a brand new, shiny, full-size, fantastic pickup truck. 
And there are not many material things in this world that cause my heart to covet, but a brand new full-size pickup is one of those things. So you try to bounce the eyes out of the direction, but they come right back. And you think, that is a wonderful truck. And it's, you know, the, the top-of-the-line trim package, so it's got all the bells and whistles, and it's, it's just wonderful. And I'm just gazing in its beauty, trying not to covet, and I'm walking back, and I do the double-take of that truck, and there's my 19-year-old pickup with the rusty tailgate, and you're trying to be content, but you're still struggling with coveting. And, you know, you think, well, that guy must be doing all right. I mean, I wonder which one of these uh, rich guys in here that belongs to. I go into the dinner meeting, uh, the, the, the dinner and then the meeting, and then it's after time. And so I'm making small talk, uh, especially with some of the young guys there. And this was the Thursday before the Super Bowl. So my, my you know, icebreakers, what are you guys doing for the game? I'm doing this, I'm doing that. And one of the young guys in his, I'm going to call it mid-20s, said, well, I'm going to watch the game with my parents. I said, well, that's super nice of your parents to have you over to watch the Super Bowl. And he said, well, I live in the basement of my parents. And I said, well, then it's really nice for your parents to host you for the Super Bowl. He said, yeah, I would love to move out, but my truck payment is almost $850 a month. Oh. <laughs> it's tough to afford my apartment and a truck payment. And I just thought, <laughs> I immediately knew which truck he drove. And I rethought through all my previous jealousy with a much different lens. I have never been more satisfied and content with my beautiful pickup, my beautiful home and family and independence. But my, my assumption was the owner of that truck must be wealthy. All appearances communicated that, but the reality was much, much different than appearances. It was different than assumptions. What is Jesus saying here? He's warning us. Be careful about your assumptions when it comes to heaven. He's saying that the people that you assume are in, that appear would be in, might not be in. And the people that you assume are out, that would appear from externalities are out, might not be out. He's saying that heaven is going to have a surprising population. Verse 25, Jesus is saying that the door to heaven is one day going to be shut. And that is the day that either we die or Jesus returns, whichever comes first. And that some people, when that door shuts, are going to be on the outside, but they assumed that they were going to be on the inside. It's going to be a shocking moment. And look what their assumptions are based on. Why did they assume they were in? Verse 26. They said, well, we ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. What are they appealing to? What was their assumption based on? Proximity. Proximity. Proximity to Jesus, proximity to the things of Jesus, proximity to the teachings of Jesus. They made a presumption based on proximity, and it was eternally deadly. They heard about the door. They saw the door. They were around the door all the time. They were familiar with the door. They could tell you all the details about the door. They could quote Bible verses about the door, but they never walked through the door. City Light, this should make us in this room like sit up straight sober up our minds and lean into Jesus' teaching here. Why? Because by virtue of being in this room this morning, because we are church-going people, we are the people who are in proximity to the things of Jesus. You're literally in church this morning. You're not hungover sleeping off what you did last night. You're listening to a sermon about Jesus. Some of you were here at the Nine serving in City Light Kids. You're two-hour attenders and servers. Maybe you grew up in the church. Your mom taught Sunday school. Granddad was a pastor. You uh, were a counselor at the Christian camp and college. Many of us have been in proximity to the things of Jesus maybe our whole lives. 
And all of that's great. None of that is bad. That's a common grace to have access to the truth in the gospel. But the danger of people like us is that we would ever assume that we're good with God because we've been around the things of God our whole lives. That is a presumption based on proximity that is deadly. If we're in proximity to the things of God, but we've never let it hit our heart, we're in a dangerous place. If we've never wept over the sin in us and cried out for the mercy of Jesus. Jesus' warning here is precisely for people like us. Make sure you've actually walked through the door. Verse 24, he says, strive to enter the door. That's a unique word, right? We're gospel people. The truth of the gospel is there is no earning, right? Jesus did all the earning, and yet he says strive. What is the striving? If there's no earning, what is the striving? Let me simplify it as much as I can. To strive to enter the door means we need to willfully, diligently, specifically reject and receive. We need to reject any notion, any teaching, any thought that salvation is Jesus plus something else. We need to reject any sense of entitlement before God, any notion that God owes us something because we're good church-going people, any belief, any assumption that we'll be in heaven someday because of the kind of life that we live, the kind of people that we are. We need to reject all of that. We need to receive not just the intellectual truth that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, but the existential truth that Jesus is my way and my truth and my life. And I don't get to the Father except through him. I would plead with you today, would you do that today if you have not? Strive to enter the door. Then in verse 29, it says that people are going to come from the east and the west and the north and the south to recline in the kingdom of God. What's what's he referring to here? here? Well, most specifically, he's, he's talking about Gentile people, but more generally, he's talking about people outside of the religious systems of the day. He's saying, he's talking about people who are away from the temple and the sacrifices and their Saturday morning school and services. He's saying that heaven is going to have a surprising population. We're going to see people in heaven that we would have assumed would never be there. And that hell is going to be populated by some very religious, very moral, very church-going people that we never thought would be there. Because the door that separates heaven from hell isn't our morality, it isn't our good deeds, it's the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Jesus alone is the door. Have you walked through that door? Heaven has a narrow door. It's got a surprising population. Here's the last one. Heaven has a compassionate Savior. What do I mean by that? That sounds sort of cliche. That's very churchy. Compassionate Savior, of course. Well, here's what I mean. You hear a truth about Jesus um, being the narrow door, the exclusivity of the way to heaven, and you can't help maybe but think to yourself, what kind of cruel God would have such a narrow door? Or perhaps what kind of capricious deity would let anyone go to hell anyway? Well, good news for us, our last few verses are going to show us the heart of this God. Who is this God with the narrow door? Verse 31. At that very hour, some Pharisees came to him and said, came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, that's not a compliment, by the way, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day. I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. What's happening here? 
while some Pharisees are warning Jesus that there is a death sentence waiting for him when he reaches the city. Now, what their real motives were for this warning, we don't know. What we've picked up so far in Luke is that the Pharisees are not big fans of Jesus. They're not the kind of people that would offer a benevolent warning for his well-being. We don't know why they give him this warning, but what is important is look at Jesus' response. What becomes clear to us is that Jesus knows that a death sentence awaits him. He knows that his entrance into Jerusalem will be his last, and yet he says essentially, I'm going anyway. So what kind of Savior has such a narrow door to salvation? It's a Savior who is resolved to open that door, even though it would cost him his very life. Jesus knows the price of our salvation, the cost of opening the door to sinners. He knows the beating that he would receive, the agony of the cross, the wrath of God poured out on him, and yet he does not turn back at this warning. He doesn't shy away from his rescue mission out of love. He presses forward. He's not a cruel God, friends. He's a God who's determined to open the door for us at an incredible cost to himself. And then furthermore, look at his heart in this lament in verse 34. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a savior who is weeping over the lost. He sees their pride. He sees their unwillingness to humble themselves and walk through the free door of salvation. And his heart is broken. He's not laughing and mocking at people going to hell. He's not limiting who's in. He is weeping over those who will not humble themselves to walk through the door. This isn't an angry God who delights to send people to hell. This is a compassionate Savior who has opened a door to heaven for rebellious people who deserved hell. And he has opened the door for us, and he did it out of love. Love for you, love for me, at an incredible cost to himself. I want to tell you a little bit about why this is so powerful and important to me. Uh, I've shared a bit of my story, uh, maybe a little bit hyperbolic, but let me just state it for the point. I grew up in close proximity to the things of God. I grew up in church. I was baptized. I think the first week I was alive, I was confirmed at age 13. I memorized all the verses to get my confirmation. Probably the only kid that took it seriously in my class. You know, I'm, I'm doing it all. I was a good kid. I was a rule follower. I didn't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls. Who do, as the old Baptist preacher might say. I was a good kid. I was a rule follower. I didn't have any detentions. I, did, I had perfect attendance. I was a 4.0. Some of you are judging me and hating me right now. I was totally that guy. So annoying. Honor society, youth group leader, all the things, that was me, okay? But the majority of that time, I was outside the door to heaven. I was headed for hell. Why? Because I assumed that because I was a good kid, I was a rule follower, I was a church kid. If I'm not getting in, who is? My assumption that was, was that God owed me heaven. He owed me blessings. I, I deserved a good life. He owed me prosperity. And it was a really dangerous place to be because I made the presumption based on proximity. And it was deadly. I knew the verses. I knew the rules. I followed them best I could. But friends, the chief of all sins is pride. And to walk through the door, I had to repent of all my self-righteousness. 
I had to admit that even though I was the good kid, I had to walk through the same door as every drug dealer and murderer. There is one door for anyone who would enter. And it's the door of forgiveness and grace and humility. It's the door of Jesus. And praise God that he saved me. Jesus saved me not just from my sins of rebellion that I tried so hard to avoid and then hid when I fell into him anyway, but he also saved me from my, my sins of self-righteousness and pride and independence. I want to ask you, church friends, have you walked through that door? Have you trusted Jesus? If not, today is that day. I would encourage you, if he is calling your name, don't harden your heart. Scripture is clear. We can do that. We can stiff-arm God all the way to the grave. And on that day, the door will be closed and it will be too late. But if he's calling your name, would you humble yourself and would you walk through that door? Jesus loves you. He paid an extraordinary price for you. And the door is open for you right now. Thank you for joining us this morning for a favorite message from Pastor Gavin Johnson of City Light Omaha. If you'd like to hear this message again or more like it, check out Heard On Air on the MyBridge Radio app or online at mybridgeradio.net.